The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, the Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, the Craft House Brewery, Moonshot.com, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. Join Rudolph in a trip to the island of misfit toys. Meet Yukon Cornelius, the funniest prospector of the North. Gad, Zeus, the bumble snow monster of the North strikes again. <laughs> Meet Santa's elves and hear seven original Christmas songs. Burl sings... Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. It's a holly jolly Christmas special for the entire family. Don't miss Rudolph, Sunday, December 4th, in color on most of these stations. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. That's how it sounded in 1964 when the network was promoting the first showing of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, one of many holiday specials that would be created by Rankin and Bass Productions. We can now take a behind-the-scenes look at how this company was formed and how they created this stop-motion process called Animagic that still looks good to this day. My guest is official Rankin and Bass biographer and historian, Rick Goldschmidt in Chicago. Rick, welcome. How did you get to know both Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass? Well, it happened through my artwork. Um, I went to Columbia College in Chicago for illustration, and um, I friended Jack Davis and Paul Coker Jr., who I found out later designed all of the Rankin-Bass specials. And um, I asked about Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass, whatever happened to them. And both artists were still working for them. And then they they said, you should get in touch with Arthur. And they gave me his number in Bermuda. And I told them there should be a book. And he said, send me two chapters. So I did. And he liked them. (laughs) And he sent me his life story in a micro cassette. Wow, that's interesting. And when I've seen interviews, he's gone now, of course. But when I've seen interviews where he talks about the books that you've done, whenever anyone interviewed him, he he would always kind of refer to your book because he, you know, he goes, I'm older, I can't remember, but these books sure have all the facts in them. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he was not a person that would reflect back on, you know, past achievements. He always was looking forward. In fact, when he passed away, he was trying to bring Santa Baby to the stage as a stage play musical. Um, He just never, never cared about the past as much. But when my books came out, then he knew that, you know, he would be remembered for Rudolph and Frosty and all of that. And he was happy with that. He was content with that. But he always wanted to make a Gone with the Wind and and win an Academy Award. Um, So he always set high goals and... He never quite got there, but he will be remembered for all the great, you know, classic Christmas specials. Yeah, and he did a ton of children's programming. Did he ever do any sort of adult dramas or go into that territory at all? Yeah, he did. Um, It started with, they did King Kong Escapes in 1968, which is kind of a, you know, a low budget uh, (laughs) Japanese film. But then... Later, he got the chance to make movies, even in Bermuda, where they were on the ABC Friday night movie, like the Bermuda Depths and The Last Dinosaur, and so on and so forth. And those movies were still low budget, but at the time, the special effects were 
you know, pretty cutting edge. <laughs> and uh, yeah. he he became famous on the on the island for directing those movies. Um, you know, he was one of the big celebrities in Bermuda um, because of those movies. So he he didn't quite get there, but he he started to. Did you ever get to know Jules Bass at all? Yes, I did. And um, he he sort of never really was the voice of Rankin Bass and never really wanted to get too involved. He went through the the draft of my first book and second book, and he still stayed in touch with Arthur Rankin, but they pretty much parted ways after Thundercats in 85, and another guy took his place, Peter Bacallion, who always helped me out through the years, and uh, he just wasn't as um, social as Arthur Rankin was, and Arthur started the company, too. It was his company to begin with, and he brought Jules in as sort of a friend um, as time went on. What were they doing way back when? I mean, when they first got together, what jobs did they have? I'm assuming it was in TV or advertising or something. Well, it started out doing uh, commercials. And even in stop motion, they did some commercials, too, which are pictured in my Arthur Rankin scrapbook. You know, they did things like Pine Wax and uh, eventually GE decided to do Rudolph because they wanted to advertise their houseware division products. And Rankin-Bass did the commercials for the first two runnings of Rudolph on NBC. Uh, eventually, what happened was GE decided, we'll start an entertainment division, which they called Tomorrow Entertainment. And then they financed all the Rankin-Bass specials after that. So Arthur Rankin didn't have to go take out bank loans or get financers. He just had GE doing all that, which was good. But then yeah. GE owned the shows. Right. And, and then when they sold them, they sold them to Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. And then they got passed down to all these other corporations which don't know what they're doing with them and, and haven't properly put out a DVD or Blu-ray uh, yet. Um, they did do a decent blue, uh, DVD in 2001 that Arthur Rankin did the introductions on, and there were some bonus features. But everything since then has been garbage. I saw a reel on YouTube. It was uh, just what you're talking about in terms of General Electric owning the property, and it was all the characters basically in Rudolph. It must have been about an hour's worth of General Electric products. We posted that um, because Arthur Rankin and I uh, found that material, yeah. and uh, we posted that on YouTube, uh, Miser Brothers Press. And uh, I, I really liked that aspect of it because... Very rare. In, yeah, and they were in the print ads, too, in all the magazines of the, of the day. Um, so that was kind of cool. They never did merchandising until after my book came out. And that's actually what gave Stuffins the idea to do beanbag dolls based on Rudolph. And CVS Pharmacies picked it up, and they had a big success with it. 
Right. Now you see the stuff everywhere. Yeah, I think Hallmark has a lot of stuff in their stores, right, too. Right, So when they founded the company, was it called Videocraft in the beginning? Yeah, it was Videocraft International because it was partly in Canada, England, and um, Japan. And um, Arthur Rankin produced The New Adventures of Pinocchio. That was the first series that they did in stop motion. And that was done at Dentsu in Japan. And um, actually, he never would have finished the series if a friend of his didn't lend him like 50000 or something like that. A friend wow. of his from the Navy. And uh, once he finished Pinocchio, it eventually led to Rudolph. The people in Japan that they collaborated with, were they the ones who actually invented the, the Animagic or the stop motion process? Or how did how was that discovered? Yeah, well, that that was, the, it was run by a guy named Ted Moshinaga, who was uh, considered the father of stop motion animation in Japan. And Arthur Rankin went to Japan in 59, as part of a Washington delegation uh, to see what they were doing. And he discovered that what they were doing was amazing, and he wanted to bring it to American television. He knew it would work and it would be popular. But also, Arthur loved the Japanese culture. He loved being over there. He visited frequently, and he also oversaw everything there. So he really... Uh, had an eye for quality talent, and that's why he hired people like Jack Davis and Paul Coker, uh, Al Hirschfeld, and uh, Frank Frazetta right. in the States to design stuff because he he was the art director at ABC Television when ABC started. Um, so he really he really knew his his uh, craft and really knew talent when he saw it. I remember as a kid thinking, you know, a lot of this, even as a kid, just thinking the stuff that's coming out of Japan, like I suppose Stingray did and Speed Racer and things like that. It was really amazing. It was kind of a step above, really ahead of its time. Oh, definitely. And uh, it was a very creative time. And I always, I do a lot of panels at events and I always talk about the fact that the reason Rankin-Bass has lasted 50 plus years is he hired experienced, talented people. You know, these people were working on this stuff for 10, 20, 30 years before Rudolph. And nowadays, you know, with all the CGI and everything that we see that they call entertainment, right. these are kids like right out of college that they're paying $10 an hour for their dream job at Disney or wherever. And it, yeah. sh it shows. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The stuff comes out and it's forgotten about, you know, in about two weeks. And then it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray and people buy it because that's their only choice. There's not there's not a very competitive children's entertainment market anymore. And, you know, it's sad, but that's why Rankin-Bass has lasted so long. And it's also Romeo Muller's writing. He wrote these underdog characters that we all identify with and they triumph in the end and the villains get reformed. It's just a satisfying storyline 
that you could watch 100, 200 times and not get sick of it. Yeah, I mean, Romeo Muller really knew his craft, didn't he, to have that uh, that moral of the story and the antagonist in the beginning. And yeah, it was it was so well done. And he wrote for he wrote plays before Arthur ever hired him. He wrote for people like Jack Benny and Milton Berle. He wrote for a long time and really worked on his craft and, and became that great writer that he was by the time Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass hired him. Rick Goldschmidt, the Rankin-Bass historian and biographer, joins me. And you, you were talking about uh, Canada as being one of the spots that they mined talent from. And, and they had their own kind of company of voice actors, didn't they, that they yes. used? And um, Billy Mae Richards, who was the voice of Rudolph, became yeah. a very close friend of mine. For, for several years and we did radio shows together and I learned from her and some of the others that radio in Canada lasted longer than it did in the U.S. Um, you know, once television came to the U.S., pretty much put radio out of business but in terms of radio dramas and things like dramas that dramas and comedies and things like that because Billy Mae Richards was doing voices for little boys on right. their radio dramas like Huck Finn and several others which I got copies of later and that's why they could take these characters that they only had pictures of, you know, they didn't see the animation when they did their voice work and give them so much life, you know, without, without viewing the animation. And, and that really helped the productions of Rudolph and, you know, the little drummer boy and all the other things that Rankin Bass did early on. Uh, was the great vocal talent that they got. Back then, I was going to say that uh, it it, w it may have been a little more unusual for a, f a female adult to do a little boy's character, but now, you know, you look at The Simpsons and all these other cartoons, and that's just the way it's done now. Right, right. And they were the first to really bring star talent into the mix, like Burl Ives and Fred Astaire and Jimmy Durante, but Back then, these stars had wonderful voices that lent to animation, like Mickey Rooney and Ryan right. and Wynn. And now they just take anybody, you know, a Brad Pitt or whoever, and put them in the in the movie because of their their name. Right. Um, it was it was exactly the opposite when Rankin Bass used them because their voices were so distinct and so perfect for the characters. And Arthur Rankin knew all these people because his family came out of the movies and vaudeville and so forth. So it was a really a perfect match for what they were doing. So it was easy for him just to pick up the phone and, and call Burr alive. Right. Right. And, um, and, and know that he would be the perfect person. You know, he was the premier balladeer of the era and knew that he could handle silver and gold, you know, right. or holly jolly Christmas. And it, it was like they looked for talent that would work, not just because they're famous, because most of our generation know these people from the work they did with Rankin Bass and not the movies that they 
won Academy Awards for, like Burl Ives won the Academy Award for the big country and, and the same year he was in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and yes. he probably would have won for that. But this generation, the baby boomers and the millennials, they know of Miss Sam the Snowman. Yes, yes. Well, and voice talent, even of that level, and you, you mentioned the Fred Astaire's and, and others, Mickey Rooney, were they, I, I seem to remember that back then, they would get paid for the first showing or the one session of the show. Is that how it worked also with with the stars who were in the Rankin and Bass shows? No, no. Um, the Canadian actors had a union and they had a two-year contract, so they were paid a flat fee up front. Earl Ives and people like Red Skelton, because I have his contract, what, what would happen is they would pay him a certain amount for the first year, and then each year it would diminish a little bit after that. And it usually went for about seven years, but Earl Ives, still, his estate still gets money when the show airs. So he had a different arrangement, um, which was better. <laughs> yeah, some sort of a percentage deal or something like that. Or Exactly. I think I heard Billy Mae Richards in a, in a radio interview say that they didn't figure this would become a perennial favorite all these, you know, 50 plus years later, that it would go maybe one or two showings and, the, and that would be it. So it's got to be pretty amazing for, for those actors who were in this thing. Well, some of them, uh, the Canadian ones, are bitter a little bit. Yeah. And and she was at first because they they felt like they got taken advantage of and that Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass were the the guilty ones. But I can tell you this, Arthur and Jules never knew it would last more than two or three airings. And um, if they did, they would have gotten a percentage of the show or bought the show from yeah. AE somehow. Um so the, nobody knew that it was going to last 55 years this year for Rudolph or 50 for Frosty. Um, but, you know, that's the thing about Rankin-Bass Productions is there's so much heart and warmth and quality to it that it'll last another 50 years. For and sure. nobody can really copy it. You know, there's been so many companies that have tried to do Christmas specials or holiday specials and and they just don't have the magic they don't understand the whole concept really uh, about the heart and the warmth and and the and the underdog characters and the reformed villains magic rick goldschmidt from rankin and bass uh joins me rick i, I remember hearing charles schultz saying that he wasn't exactly happy with the final product when it came to a Charlie Brown Christmas. What did the guys think? What did Rankin and Bass think of the finished product when Rudolph came out? Well, um, they loved it because yeah. immediately after it aired the first time, they got a movie deal with um, Joseph E. Levine. Um, wow. In 1965, they signed a deal at the Time Life building, and they made a big deal out of it, and it was to do three movies. Um, one was Mad Monster Party, one right. was The Daydreamer, and one was The Wacky World of Mother Goose. 
um, that picture deal kind of soured because out of the three, the Daydreamer, which was in my fifth book, um, that was going to be a Mary Poppins type movie. They got huge stars, Sesawa Hayakawa, Earl Ives, Boris Karloff, uh, Patty Duke, Haley Mills, who just uh, signed my book, um, a whole bunch of big stars, and it didn't turn out to be the the Mary Poppins that Levine was hoping for. So he kind of snuck Mad Monster Party out, which was the gem of the three and the one that most people love. And I had to do a whole book about Mad Monster Party because of it. That's Boris Karloff. Right, and Phyllis Stiller. And um, for Halloween, there's nothing better than watching that movie. Um, you know, it has all the classic monsters in it. You were saying, is Pinocchio the one, the first one where they use the animagic process? Yes, Um and uh, it started in 1960, and it was a syndicated uh, TV series that um, local TV host would show. Like in, in Chicago, it was on the Garfield Goose right. Friends show with Fraser Thomas. And what they could do is they could show one five-minute episode each day for the five days, and it would make a full story for the week kind of like Clutch Cargo. Right. <laughs> it, it was a great series, I think, too, and it had a lot of merchandising done with it. Um, but that for that show, like I said, Arthur had to give bank loans and borrow from friends, and it was hard to make any money when you did that. But um, it eventually led to Rudolph. Was this process, the stop motion, was it done before Art Clokey did it with Davy and Goliath and Gumby and Pokey? Um, they sort of did it simultaneously. I would call Art Clokey style claymation. Right. And Bass's Animagic is more dolls. Um, although I did appear at Chiller Theater in New Jersey last year with the whole cast of Gumby and Davy and Goliath. And Davy and Goliath are more like the Rankin-Bass uh, figures where they have clothes and, and other materials that make up their composition. So it's very similar, and um, both are great, you know. But Arthur Rankin, you know, like I said, he loved that Japanese culture and I think the Japanese were a little farther in advanced with the with the uh, whole technique um, because as the years went on, you could see it got more and more refined with the Rankin Bass shows. The whole stop motion thing, boy, it must have been tedious to move uh, the the body a frame at a time. How long did it take to f to produce Rudolph from start to finish? That was eighteen months. Wow. Um, from start to finish. And um, they did have to use multiple figures in some cases because they would shoot scenes simultaneously on different sets. And the sets were small, you know, like table size, but the actual figures were bigger than most people could imagine. The Santa was about 16 inches yeah, and uh, Rudolph was about eight, and they have to peg them through the bottom of the set to move them around, and 
it is a lot of work, and, and I don't think there was any studio in the States that was equipped to do that kind of work um, during the 60s. So, Which came first, the voice tracking and music or the stop-motion process? How, how did, what was the order of things? Well, um, I think they started on everything at the same time, um, yeah. and that's why the voice actors didn't get to see any of the animation or really any of the photos of the characters. they I think they just saw the storyboards and the drawings and kind of came up with the idea of their characters from that, which is amazing in itself, you know, because um, it's such a perfect match. Rick Goldschmidt is here from Rankin and Bass, and, and you know, also Johnny Marks, who wrote the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer back in the 40s, they actually got him to compose the score for the show. Yeah, because Johnny Marks was a neighbor of Arthur Rankin's in New York, and he would see him at parties socially, and he tried to convince him early on to do a television special, but he really didn't want to do it because the song was bringing in so much revenue for him. So many different artists had recorded yeah. it, but... Really, the television special, once he convinced them to do it, made Rudolph so much bigger and better than he was as a property. Um, it's what everybody knows Rudolph from now. And it's interesting to note that Johnny Marks and his brother-in-law, Robert L. May, who wrote the storybook, the only characters they created was Rudolph, period. All the other characters, Hermie the Dentist Elf, uh, Yukon Cornelius, the Bumble, those all came from Romeo Muller. And there's all this merchandising being done now, and the wrong people are getting the, the benefits of that because the Romeo Muller estate and Tony Peters, who designed the characters, they're the ones that should be um, reaping the re rewards from characters appearing at amusement parks and musicals going around the country. It's Romeo Muller's characters. So are there legal uh, proceedings that are pending at this point? We'll say regarding that? <laughs> uh, you know, eventually, you know, Jack Kirby and, and Stan Lee got paid uh, for the characters they created for Marvel because all of these movies are using those characters and eventually the Kirby estate was rewarded last year because he really came up with the whole design of those characters. So eventually uh, I hope to see Romeo Muller's estate and, and Tony Peters and Paul Coker Jr. who designed Frosty and Santa Claus is Coming to Town and, and all the great shows uh, get their rewards too. And Maury Laws, uh, that's another important name in the production, isn't it? He, he passed away um, this last March, I believe, and um, we were good friends. Um, he would come to Chicago because his son John lived in the city, and we would meet up for dinner. And I even brought Maury to a recording studio to record an interview uh, for the Daydreamer CD release, so... His music is so important because it has an identifiable quality to it. It's a bouncy kind of xylophone <laughs> feeling yeah. music. 
right. that makes you happy. You know, it really puts you in a good mood and, and in the Christmas spirit. And yeah, he had everything to do with the, the reason that they've lasted so long. You know, speaking of the music, one of the quirkier things is we're a couple of misfits that was, I think it was replaced after the first showing and replaced with fame and fortunate, and then they put it back again. What was the thinking behind that? The reason it was changed in 65 was Willard Salaw, who actually got the show on the air from General Electric, they did it as a favor to him. To put, he wanted a new song, and they had to replace the song because they couldn't really reshoot the whole special. Um, so they just did a replacement thing as a favor to him. And Arthur always liked Fame and Fort, or uh, We're a Couple of Misfits better. So when they found that material, when they first did a decent DVD release, they called me up and said, what is all this stuff, you know? And I told them, you know, where it goes and, and, and why it happened. And, and they just restored it because, the, you know, Arthur really felt like it was a better song anyway. And yeah. the animation was better in uh, We're a Couple of Misfits. But if you look at Fame and Fortune, you'll see the trees are missing all the snow and the decorations. <laughs> It was it was kind of put together haphazardly, and and they didn't have a lot of time to do it. Another scene that I, I'm you probably have been asked this before, but it's it's always struck me as funny as the head elf and how his voice changed in mid scene. What happened there? Herbie, aren't you finished painting that yet? All out for elf practice. Well, let's get this over with. I have to go down and look over the new gear. Okay, Santa. Now let's try out the new elf song I wrote. And remember, it's for Santa. And the wanna, and the two-a, and the three-a. Well, I think that was, was also... Nobody remembers what happened exactly, but... <laughs> Did um, he forget that what his voice was in this? No, <laughs> it was a last-minute uh, deal where... Instead of going back to Canada to get the actor to redo his part, they had somebody else in the States fix it. And he tried his best to, you know, get the, the voice close, but you can tell it's definitely not the same actor. It's, it's like Bella Lugosi after he died midway in Plan 9 from Outer Space, I guess, and they just exactly. put Exactly. <laughs> and when, when James Dean died in uh, after shooting Giant, yeah. they brought in um, Nick Adams to do his voice when he was drunk, falling down on the table at the end of the movie. Wow. Nick Adams was a friend of, of James Dean, and he did his best, but it doesn't sound like exactly like James Dean. And I'm wondering what, back then, how it's different from, you know, the recording process now doing voice work. Did all of the voices record together in a room, or was it uh, done separately somehow back then? They were all together, and in fact, the guy who was the engineer on those sessions is a very good friend of mine, Bill Giles, and he's still living. He spends his winters in Florida and his summers in Canada. <laughs> and he he actually worked at the RCA uh, recording 
and and worked on sessions with Perry Como and Elvis Presley and a whole bunch of like legends. Yeah. And he tells me about the sessions and he said that Arthur was the one that was most involved. That was the person he who gave direction. Even though Larry Romer is written as the director on the piece and Jules was there, but he didn't say a whole lot. Arthur was the one really directing the whole thing. And Bernard Cowan brought the actors in and, and put them together. But Arthur was the one who really gave the direction on the recording. wonder if there are any lost outtakes with Rudolph cussing or something like that. <laughs> I don't think so, because she, um, she was a real sweetheart. And um, everybody that I talked to seemed to be very professional, too. The puppets, uh, Rick, I've heard just kind of went away. I mean, people gave them away because there really was no collector's type market as much back then right but but most of them are in japan and um my books it's not just my book on rudolph but all of my books have a section about where are they now um puppets because i'm finding out about them as the years go on you know there's a handful in the states and i've appeared with them at various shows like chiller theater and and the shag store out in hollywood i had some of them but most of them are in japan and our frosty book will have pictures of it from king the king kong puppet from mad monster party and a lot of the willie mcbean puppets are there uh, there's another santa in japan um, there's a whole bunch of them, and we found Mortimer Snurd from the unaired um, Charlie McCarthy pilot that they nice. shot. He's in a museum in uh, in the states, uh, the Vent Haven Museum. So they took pictures of him for me, and I put him in the Frosty book. Where can people order the Frosty book? By the way, that's the newest one. Yeah, that's my sixth book. And yeah. miserbros.com is our website. That's where we sell them exclusively, like the Heat Miser and Snow Miser, M I S E R B R O S. And you know, I got to tell you, these these specials back then, they were so special, weren't they? Because you really could only see them once a year. I mean, this was pre VCR, not like now where you can watch them a million times. Right, right. And uh, the thing that that most amazes me about them, because I'm dealing with them all the time, and, you know, even when you break it down and you write chapters about the music and the art and the actors and all that, as there's this element, I think they chose the right word, animagic. There's there's magic to them where it just... Even though you've seen it and you've heard it and you've watched it a million times, there's heart in there that that they captured that really gives them the longevity that, you know, why we're still talking about them today. It brings you right back, doesn't it, to when you were a kid. It's just great stuff. So much fun. Rick Goldschmidt, the official historian and biographer of Rankin and Bass. And again, we can order all your books and other merchandise at the website. Just a pleasure talking to you. And I'm sure that you're getting busy at this time of the year. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. And Merry Christmas, too. And you as well. 
And as we said, Rick is very busy at this time of year with different appearances. And make sure that you visit Rick's website at miserbros.com to find all the great books and merchandise. Well, that does it for this Christmas edition of The Fake Show Podcast. I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.